0: Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com. Sketches from Scripture presents Great News, a teaching series from the Gospel of Matthew. The Jewish nation had put their trust in the God of Abraham, the law of Moses, and the kingdom of David. But by the first century, they were under Roman rule, their moral culture was eroding, and it seemed their God was hidden away behind gates and curtains. Suddenly, an unknown manual laborer from a small village hits the streets with a fantastic announcement. The Gospel according to Matthew tells the story of a self-proclaimed rabbi from Nazareth who took Galilee by storm, then Judea, then Jerusalem, then Samaria, then the whole Roman world to the entire earth. In his many teachings and stories, Rabbi Yeshua brings but one message. Your heart and life can be changed because God, King of the universe, is right in front of you. So follow me. This is great news. Who do you hate? Now, I know you don't hate anybody, right? You, but there's people you don't like. And I'm not even just talking about necessarily individuals that, that you don't like. Um, and sometimes there's people we don't like. And there's sort of justifiable reasons, you know, why we don't like them. But what I kind of want you to think about is <clears throat> lately when you when you turn on the television, you know, is there a certain group of people that you see that just really kind of gets your blood boiling? I have to confess, that's true for me. I, I don't have uh, like cable TV or anything like that, but I have Twitter, and I got to stay off Twitter or else my blood pressure will go through the roof. Lots of times, so uh, think about that. I mean, for for some of you, it uh, might be people that are setting buildings on fire and destroying property. For some of you, it might be uh, Trump supporters or uh, people that support uh, a government that you don't. Uh, agree with uh, that you that you dislike that you think is unjust um but all of us have some kind of group that we we sort of look at and just immediately just riles us kind of gets the hair standing up on the back of our neck and gets our blood pressure going and that's sort of our first instinct and so i i just kind of want to want you to think about that group of people and just kind of leave them sort of in the back of your mind and we'll come back to them here in just a little bit. But first, we're going to read Matthew chapter 18. So uh, I will have it here on the screen. This is just from Bible.com, and I'll be reading Christian Standard Bible version. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, So who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a small child and had him stand among them. Truly, I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses will inevitably come, but woe to that person by whom the offense comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hellfire. See to it that you don't despise one of these little ones, because I tell you that in heaven, their angels continually view the face of my father in heaven. What do you think? If someone has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go and search for the stray? And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he rejoices over that sheep more than over the 99 that did not go astray. In the same way, it is not the will of your father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, His master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him and said, pay what you owe. At this, the fellow servant fell down and began begging him. Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay back what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. So this is the fourth discourse in Matthew we've talked that there are five discourses in Matthew. I've given them uh, some names uh, just so that we can uh, remember them all. And uh, the kingdom announced, kingdom authority, kingdom arrival, kingdom action, and then the kingdom age. And so you can see the kingdom coming down and arriving and then going back out. And so we're in the section of Kingdom action. So what we did in the last lesson a couple of weeks ago was talk about the narrative, the the four chapters of narrative that lead up to uh, this section on kingdom action, the end of chapter 13 and and then 14 through 17. So about three and a half chapters of What does it look like when the kingdom is active? What does the kingdom do? We talked a lot about discipleship. This whole section, uh, all of the Gospel of Matthew really, is about religion versus discipleship. It's Jesus speaking to religious people. It's Jesus primarily speaking to believers. Not in every case. We've seen him speaking to the Canaanite woman and a couple of other examples. But uh, we see Jesus talking to religious people, and he's really challenging them. That they don't hold so tightly to their religion that they forget the point of the religion. Okay? The the point of the religion, of the organized uh, traditions and the laws and those kinds of things, is what? It's to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. If you're not doing those things, but you're still doing all of the activities of your religion, what's the point? What what does it matter? They're, They're useless. And so several times Jesus has said, uh, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's God commanded the sacrifices. So it wasn't that he didn't want them to do any sacrifices, but it's that it's not the sacrifice he wants. It's the mercy he wants. It's the gratitude he wants. It's the humility he wants. That's what god is after and so god is after relationship god is after love god is after really getting down to the deepest things in our heart and making them right and making them new constantly turning things over <clears throat> and making them new at the beginning of this session uh at the, at the beginning of this section matthew 18 one of the first things that jesus says when they're talking about you know, who's the greatest <clears throat> jesus says unless you turn and become like little children, unless you turn, unless you change, unless you turn around, unless you repent, right? And that uh, what the word repent means means to turn around, to go in the other direction. And Jesus is telling his disciples, uh, presumably the twelve, hey, the way that you're thinking, the the thought process that you're going down, trying to figure out who's the greatest among you guys, you need to turn around from that. And you need to become like one of these little children. So children in first century were not treated as children are today. Uh, in that culture and in that age, it was uh, very different. Our, our culture, American culture, 21st century American culture is very um, uh, child heavy, very child supportive. Um, our uh Television programming and our music is aimed at youth, uh, money and commercials and marketing and these kinds of things are aimed at, at youth and at children. I know when I was in film school, your average moviegoer was a, was a 12 year old boy, which is might explain why some of Hollywood's offerings reach the, uh, level, the intellectual level that they, that they do or, or fail to. And so our entire culture is really Child-centric. It's really focused around children, and if you look at a lot of our churches, a lot of our churches are focused around the family, but particularly providing programs for the children. We have nurseries, and we have children's ministries, and we have youth ministries, and we have vacation Bible school, and we do lots of programs that are oriented for children and taking care of children. Why is that? Well, it's because of Christ. That's because of the the principles of Jesus. Taking care of those who cannot take care of themselves. Children cannot take care of themselves. They are totally dependent upon their parents to be taken care of. Their parent, their guardian, grandparent, whoever is taking care of them. Totally dependent. The seven-year-old is going to go to school. Somebody's got to take that seven-year-old. Either a parent or they're, they've they got to be shown how to walk to school. Or they're going to ride the bus. But someone's going to have to help them get there. If the seven-year-old is going to eat every day, someone has to provide food for the seven-year-old. Even if the seven-year-old can fix himself a sandwich or a bowl of cereal, uh, he's not going to be able to fix the the meals that he needs to remain nutritious. And he's not going to be able to acquire the food because he's seven. He can't have a job. How's he going to buy food, right? So a child is totally dependent on the people who are helping uh, uh, him or her grow up and mature. And so what Jesus is telling his disciples is instead of trying to figure out which one of you has arrived, which one of you has got it made, which one of you knows it all, why don't you realize, actually, you're like one of these kids. You're a child. Spiritually, you're a child. And you're totally dependent on someone stronger than you to help you mature. And you need to act with total dependence or else uh, you're going to continue down these these arguments that are not going to get you anywhere. So that's the first thing that we see in this text, this idea of spiritual maturity, immaturity. Then we see Jesus say this uh, very interesting thing here: Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Now I'm not certain, but I'm pretty sure Thomas Kincaid never painted that moment. No one has that hanging in their living room, you know, Jesus tossing someone into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck as they drown in the depths of the water. It's not really a pleasant thought to think about. It's not the Jesus that we think about when um, we think about the the flannel board stories and those kinds of things. But these are hard words. They're, They're very strong words from Jesus. What you might want to know is that having a millstone tied around your neck and thrown in the water was a common punishment for treason in the time so uh, j- even in America treason today is is can, can be punishable by death it's considered the um, the utmost betrayal to your community right so you didn't just betray a person but you betrayed your entire community uh, and really treason it's not just your community it's your it's your nation it's your it's your whole people right? So, what Jesus is effectively saying by saying this is the punishment that that is worth, what he's saying is if you lead one of these little children astray, then the punishment for you is the same punishment for treason, because you are committing treason in my kingdom. You are doing something that goes against what I'm trying to do. And so, Jesus is here with these children being dependent on him, and he says, if you shoo them away so that you can get your time in because you completely disregard this whole class of people, you are treasonous. You are doing the opposite of what I'm doing, and you're going to suffer the consequences. And so many times Jesus uses as illustrations in his story or illustrations in his parable, a people or a section of people or a kind of person that is ignored in society. In the time of Jesus, children were some such thing. Children were not meant to speak aloud. They were something that was sort of belonged to the family. And it wasn't until they came of age in their teenage years that they were really sort of considered a full person. And part of the reason for that was it wasn't until they got older and stronger that they could contribute, that they could contribute to a lot of the farming and the family business and, and these kinds of things. So that's why they came into manhood, into womanhood at age 13. And so uh, Jesus has a very special goal, and that is to just be with these children who are totally dependent on him, utmost dependence. And the lesson here that he's trying to teach his disciples, not just some disciples, the guys that have been hanging around with him now for a long time, his message to them is you need to have the total, complete dependence on me like these children have. And if you try to usurp that, you're committing treason in my kingdom. You're doing the opposite of what my kingdom is about. So let's go back and look at the text. Uh, Basically, he says it's uh, better to limp into heaven than leap into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. You know, this is a pretty strong statement, but um, anyone who's ever been in the clutches of sin knows how, how hard it is to get rid of the things that that send you off down the path of your habitual sins and those kinds of things. Uh, there's the, uh, the story of the man who went climbing and he, he got his arm stuck between two uh, rocks on the, the place where he was climbing. And the more he tried to work it out, the more swollen it got and the more stuck it got. And so he realized that at this point, it was never going to get unswollen. It was just only going to get more swollen the longer that he was there with it damaged and bleeding. And no one knew he was out there by himself. No one knew where he was. And so he realized really the only way that he was going to live was going to be to cut off his arm. And so he took out his pocket knife and cut through his skin and cut through his muscle and cut through his blood vessels and cut sawed through his bone and removed his own arm. I think he used his uh, belt or, or part of his shirt or something as a tourniquet. And it saved his life. He was able to get out of there, get back to civilization, get doctoring, and uh, and live. And he wrote a book about it. And I think there's some uh, movies and documentaries and things that have been made about it as well. But what a picture of what it takes if we're going to live a life free of sin. We've got to take drastic measures to get rid of the thing that keeps us stumbling, that keeps us sinning. Now, why is that right here? Why is he talking about sin right as he's talking about the the story with the children? Well, let's go on and then we'll kind of maybe come back to it. So the next story that he tells is the parable of the lost sheep, something that uh, I think that we're, we're pretty familiar with. So whenever you're trying to interpret a passage or try to figure out what is Jesus's meaning here, what's he getting at, you have to look at the entire context. You have to look at the entire dialogue that he's having, or the in this case, the discourse, or the way the narrative stories are lined up. Remember, not only is Jesus trying to make an argument, Jesus trying to make a point, but Matthew, in, in recollecting the things that Jesus said and did, Matthew is trying to make a point. And who's Matthew writing to? Remember, he's writing to his contemporary first century Jews. He's writing to other Jewish people, other religious people, people who practice their religion and compared to the Roman pagans that they were around, uh, doing pretty good, right? They go to the temple, they go to synagogue, they do the sacrifices, they go to the festivals, they keep the Sabbath, right? They, they they do pretty much everything that you're supposed to do. And certainly compared to these Roman pagans who are oppressing them, they look way better than that. So they're, they're pretty good. Well, Matthew is coming along with the story of Jesus to let them know your standard can't be the Roman pagans. Your standard is Jesus. And compared to Jesus, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And so... Um, That gets to some of the sin issues. So then he goes to the parable of the lost sheep. And he introduces this concept that here, this shepherd has some sheep, but one of them wanders off. And the shepherd is going to spend more time and effort and emotion chasing after the stray than tending the ones that have not left. Okay, so a lot of times when I hear this story, we talk about it in terms of a single person that's left the flock, that's left the church, or maybe a friend of ours that's kind of straight off on the path. Again, we're sort of connecting it to the sin idea that's from the previous story. But we got to look at the total of this dialogue and what everything's about. Remember what I told you the discourse was about. It's about community regulations. It's This is the kingdom action discourse. This is about what it looks like to live in the community. So we've had stories leading up to this about what it looks like to be part of the kingdom community, the disciples going out on mission and that sort of thing. Now we have a discourse from Jesus. We have teaching from Jesus about what it looks like when the kingdom is active, when the kingdom is doing what it's supposed to do. So when the kingdom is doing what it's supposed to do, what we've learned so far is that you're going to be humble and you're going to be entirely dependent on Jesus, on the Father, and you are not going to be concerned with your own status because you are so dependent on the Father, your own status is irrelevant. And um, that you've got to really get down into the depths and really think about the source of your sin and those kinds of things so that you don't lead others astray. And now we have the story here of a, a sheep going astray. Then the next story is... Restoring a brother. So, yes, this is absolutely about church discipline. And, you know, if you have uh, someone in the church who's wandered off, and so it's an important story. Then we have this parable of the servant. And all of this whole discourse, this short discourse, culminates in this idea of forgiveness. And so I want to park here a little bit before we discuss some more. So, Peter first says, Speaking to Jesus, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times. So it would be helpful to know that at this time, what the teachers of the law commanded were that you were to forgive someone three times. And after that, no more forgiveness. You were to forgive three times. And so Peter here thinks he's really doing something pretty great. I mean, Peter's really setting himself up really well here. Peter's got a good one. So he says, you know, how many times should I forgive? Uh, seven times? You know, three is a holy number, but seven's a holy number too. And it's way more than three. And so you can imagine the shock that he received and the humiliation that he received when Jesus said, um, no, not seven times. Seventy times seven. In other words, just keep forgiving. Just keep doing it till you lose count. Just keep doing it. And this really challenged Peter's notion of what forgiveness was. And so Jesus goes on to tell the parable about the uh, kingdom, the king who wanted to settle the accounts with the servants. So something that we don't really pick up on here, but his first century hearers would have noticed is that this story is really kind of got to be about a Gentile. I mean, Gentiles were the ones that had kings at this point, the uh, Jews did not have a king of their own. They had a high priest and they had a, a Herod type, you know, but they didn't have kings the way that the Gentiles did. And uh, I believe it was illegal or uh, not Jewish practice for a family to be sold to pay a debt. You know, Jews don't sell each other into slavery. It's not something that they that they do in this way. And so... Um, The uh, the servant bowing down, doing obeisance before the king—that was not something that was part of Jewish practice. That's not something a Jewish person would do. And so, this story, really, it would have been clear to the first hearers: it's it's not—it's about a Gentile. These are Gentiles in this story. So, you could just dismiss it and say, "Well, it's a parable," and so Jesus is just picking some people. It, it, It certainly is very persuasive to pick a third party and tell a story about them when you're really talking about the person that you're speaking to. It's much more effective for the person that you're speaking to because if they think about themselves, they get defensive. They can't listen. But if it's about somebody else, oh yeah, I can listen. To that. Oh, I see that. Oh, they should do this. We go back to the, the, the David series. And remember when Nathan comes and tells David about the, the, the man who stole the sheep and David gets incensed and Nathan says, Hey, you're the man, David. The story I'm telling is actually about you. Of course, David can see it right away. Part of that is, is what's happening here. Jesus has picked the Gentiles to sort of tell this story. But he also does it because it's shocking. So just like in the parable of the Good Samaritan, okay, I'm just clear from other sections in scripture and uh, other things that you can research, the Samaritans, their scripture is an error. Their, their theological understanding is an error. Jesus essentially says as much to the woman at the well in John 4. He says, well, you don't know what you're talking about because you're a Samaritan and I'm a Jew. Salvation comes from the Jews. Um, but he he still uses the Samaritan as the hero of the story of the good Samaritan, not to show that the Samaritan is right with God because of his theology, but merely to answer the question at hand in that parable, which is who is my neighbor? That's really the only question that's going on in that story. So we look here and we see what he's doing once again is he's picking a Gentile and he's having the Gentile do something shocking. When the king forgives this servant of this massive debt of thousands of dollars, it's very shocking to the Jewish audience. Uh, the Roman rule in particular was um, was a, a strong rule. It was a very uh, violent community, a violent nation. And so this kind of story would have been very shocking to hear. And even more shocking of a twist is that the servant then goes out and holds his friend to the fire to repay the debt. And so there's a story all filled with all these twists, clearly, Seems to be pointing to Gentiles, but Jesus makes the comparison and turns it around, points it at the disciples to whom he's speaking. So, what's happening here? So, everything in this discourse is really talking about the community. I know as Americans, we really value our individualism, and there's certainly a lot of scripture about what an individual person is responsible for and not responsible for, and all those things. But I think because of our American individualism, we often overlook the community aspect of much of scripture. Uh, Eastern culture and the way much of scripture is written is really a communal aspect. Think of the uh, the Lord's Prayer, right? If we want to learn how to pray, well, we pray the Lord's Prayer. What do we do? We bow our heads and pray it in our mind, pray it silently. But what are the first words? Our Father, our, our Father. It's meant to be a communal activity. Uh, the church discipline that's mentioned in this chapter, it's meant to be a communal activity. You work it out with your brother. Well, if you can't do that, then you take it to the community, take it to a couple of people, then you grow it out to the church and you work on it together. And Jesus makes a point of saying, well, uh, this this uh, verse is, is quoted many times uh, really out of context where he says, if... Uh, two or more are gathered in my name. There I am among them. Well, that certainly doesn't mean that when you pray by yourself, God's not listening, that God isn't there. That's not what that means. This is in the specific instance of dealing with church discipline, of, of dealing with something that's going on. In fact, he says, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. That sounds like an overwhelming amount of authority that Jesus is giving given to the church. Here in verse 18, we need to look at the the, the tenses of the verbs a little bit. He says, what I, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. And the implication there is, I have already bound it. Once you pray about it, you will realize it. And then the things that you bind will be the things that I've already bound. And the things that you loose, they'll, they'll be the things that I've already loosed. That's sort of what this verse is saying in chapter, in verse 18. And so, what Jesus is calling people to do in um, the, uh, the church discipline scenario here in 15 through 20 is to do it as a community, is to do it together. Why? Because of the relationship. That's why the first thing you do if somebody sins against you is you go to them individually. It's because of the relationship. Put the relationship, remember the mercy over the sacrifice. You put the relationship over the regulation, put the community over the um, <clears throat> over the, the, the individual finer points. So this whole section is on the community. So Jesus talks about being totally dependent like children, not leading children astray, not, not leading anyone away from him. If you've got any sin in there, let's get rid of that. If there's someone astray, we, we, we go after them, we go get them. And then he tells this story that is couched in Gentileism, that is couched in Gentile storytelling. So, what's happening? It sure seems like Jesus is beginning to open up the idea that Gentiles are going to be part of this very kingdom which Jesus has been talking about now for 18 chapters. This is going to be a very hard concept for the first century Jews to understand. It's going to be hard for Peter to understand. It's going to be hard for Matthew's readers, Matthew's hearers, his audience to understand what Matthew has already learned and understood. That Gentiles get to be a part of the Jewish family. That Gentiles get to share in the blessings that have been promised to the nation of Israel. That uh the covenant that God has made with the sons of Abraham that Gentiles get to become sons of Abraham too. This is something that's going to be very difficult for them to grasp. And many of them are going to hate the idea. We talked in the last lesson about the sign of Jonah and how Jonah goes and preaches, you know, sort of a four word sermon to the Ninevites and the entire city state repents. Something like that is about to happen with the Gentiles. And the same reaction that Jonah has is going to be the reaction that many of the Pharisees have. Many of the Jews were going to have there in the first century. Those people? Wait, they they are going to be with us? So it's, it's hopefully difficult for us to imagine not wanting to associate with a group of people. Right? Most of our churches, I, I hope, Lord willing now are, are open really to anyone and anyone who is seeking to know more about the Bible or more about God or Jesus, seeking to know the truth, seeking to find a better way to live, uh, seeking a, a way out of their lost life into into some, out of darkness into light. We would, I would hope that our churches would would really accept any individual group of people that might come in or any individual person that might come in. But remember at the very beginning of this lesson, when I asked you know, when you turn on the TV or you pick up the newspaper, is there is there a group of people that just, oh, just really get your blood pressure going right away? Okay, if, if so, if there's a group of people, we see the things that they're doing and just immediately we get angry. Immediately our, our blood pressure goes up, temperature goes up, face goes red. This is a group of people that has probably strayed from God and His Kingdom. If you're a Christian watching this, and 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 you see injustice going on, or or you see oppression going on, or you see destruction going on, or you see murder going on, or you see sexual impurity going on, and you see it going on in a, in a whole community of people, it's so easy for us to get angry. It's so easy for us to 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 want to. Uh, take the mouthpiece away from those people to get them off television, to get them out of my newspaper, get them out of my neighborhood, get them out of my church. When we do that, we're the servant who's been forgiven thousands and can't forgive a hundred dollars. Now, yes, in this story, both servants asked for forgiveness or asked for patience so that they could pay back. What was owed. And so there are certainly dynamics about justice and keeping commands and those kinds of things. And I I don't want to overlook those things, but I don't want us, I don't want us to allow our, our, our love of keeping the commandments to be a stumbling block between loving our neighbor because the whole law is summed up in loving God and loving our neighbor. So when we, we see something in the news, on television, in our neighborhood, in our community, at work, when we see someone who constantly makes us angry right away, that is where Jesus is saying, okay, that right there, you, you got to cut that off. You, you got to get, get at the root and you got to pull it out. Because if you hate that person out of my kingdom, You are committing treason, and it would be better for you if you had a millstone tied around your neck and thrown in the sea. It'll be better for you if that happens to you than if I get a hold of you. That's what Jesus is saying. See now how all these stories start to go together to really begin to interpret these stories. You've got to view them as an entire teaching, not just a bunch of piecemeal stories that have nothing to do with each other. It wouldn't make sense. Would make sense for Jesus to speak that way, would make sense for Matthew to write that way. That's why the storytelling is so critical to understanding the passage. What Jesus, via Matthew, is trying to let us know is that there are groups of people out there that when we have resentment in our heart towards them, we are pushing them away from the kingdom. And that's the opposite of what God wants us to do. He wants us to be totally dependent on Him, a shepherd who goes after the strays so that we can all rejoice greatly when the stray is brought into the flock and is in a place of peace, and is in a place of love and is in a place of protection. That's what God wants. First and foremost, guilty will not go unpunished, but God, remember, is abounding in steadfast love to generation after generation. Won't let the guilty go unpunished, But he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. We need to be totally dependent on that in our relationships. So when we see the person or the the group of people or the kind of person that immediately gets our hackles up, we need to start retraining ourselves. We need to turn around in our mind and in our heart. We need to turn around and remind ourselves of what we've been forgiven. And because of that, the first thing that we need to start thinking about those people is how can I show them the love of Christ? How can the love of Christ get to them? How how can I make myself uncomfortable? How can I leave my comfortable flock, if I have to, to go after this stray and do uncomfortable things in order to make sure that the mission of the kingdom, which is the love of God, that the mission of the kingdom makes its way to these lost souls, to these lost people, to these difficult people, to these people that I admit right now I have a hard time liking, I have a hard time wanting to talk to, I have a hard time wanting to associate with. It can be a difficult thing to think about, it can be a difficult thing to drop our pride and be able to do, but Jesus is letting us know, better to limp into heaven than leap into hell, if you don't cut off the thing that is holding you back from growing the community, keeping the kingdom together, it's going to be bad news for you in the end. So with that, I want to transition a little bit to the Discipling Handbook. So I think many of you have the Discipling discipling Handbook. If you don't have it, I will put it in the comments right now. Um. Well, I can't leave a comment right now, but it's at northboulevard.com slash DBS. And um, what you will find is this is the inside of it here. Let's go back to the cover page. It'll look like this. This is a PDF. It's a handbook that we put together of all our discipling resources at North Boulevard that we found useful. So it's sort of a Cliff Notes or a Spark Notes version of... All the discipling resources that we've come across. And the focus of the book is growing disciples and and planting churches. Really, it's mostly about growing disciples. Uh, Planting churches is something that has to be done, again, on a community level. It's very difficult for a person to plant a church. It takes a team of people. It takes a community of people to plant a church. So this book is about discipleship. It's about where discipleship happens, what it means, what it looks like. And so... Uh, very quickly, the alignment page is making sure that we all have the same definitions, the same process that we're going through, the same vision of what it means to be a disciple. This page about a disciple is, talks about Matthew 4.19. Jesus says, first words to his disciples, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. It means that we're following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, committed to the mission of Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So if we're making disciples... This goes to Matthew 28, 19 and 20, which we'll get to in a few weeks, This is what we call the Great Commission. But this is Jesus' last words to his disciples before he ascends. and he says, okay, I I told you I was going to make you a disciple maker. Well, I did it. Now you go make disciple makers. And so the text down here at the bottom on the left, disciple making means helping people trust and follow Jesus. That's what discipleship is all about. Helping people trust and follow Jesus. That's what our, uh, that's what a discipleship community does that's a church community should be a discipleship community. It's helping each other trust and follow Jesus. In the family, uh, husband, wife, father, and uh, mother, and and children, they should be helping each other trust and follow Jesus. Uh, In our ministries, in our classes, in our small groups, we're helping other people trust and follow Jesus. In our interaction with strangers, we should be pushing them toward trusting and following Jesus. If we're doing discipleship, It's going to have these seven things. It's going to have Father, Son, and Spirit. So God's definitely going to be at the center of it. Relationships are going to be at the center of it, both relationship with God and relationship with neighbor. It's going to be intentional. No discipleship is going to happen on accident. It's just not going to happen that way. It's going to have the Bible. That's how we know about God. That's how we know about Jesus. That's how we know really about human nature and what we need to do about it. Uh, So we've got to be using the Bible. There's going to be a journey. If everyone is the same at the end of uh, a period of discipleship, then there was no journey. So it wasn't really discipleship. And there's got to be multiplication. This is one of the most difficult things for the American church, because once we get in a class, once we get in a small group, or once we get in a church, we like for it to stay that way. But what Jesus wants us to do is to break out, is to multiply and keep creating uh, groups so that the kingdom grows. The kingdom is meant to grow. We're supposed to go out and find those strays and celebrate over them until we have so many strays, our strays are going out to find strays. That's disciple-making. And so those seven things are part of any disciple-making journey. Discipleship context, we've been over this in lessons before, large public context, a uh, 20 to 70 people is like a social context, like a class, a ministry, or a community. Personal, which would be like a small group. Transparent, which would be a disciple, a discipling group, discipleship group. Uh, this is going to be two to five people, same gender, where there's real vulnerability and accountability. And then divine discipleship, which is just you alone with the Holy Spirit, you alone with the Word, you alone in prayer with God. At North Boulevard, we tell everybody to get a community, a family, and a mentor. You're going to do the divine uh, section on your own the public section that you out in the world. But if you're part of a community, which is um, you know one of our campuses, if you're part of a family, some kind of ministry or class, or, and if you're part of some mentoring, if you're in a D group, if you're in those three things, what I tell my classes is, if you have a community, family and a mentor, you're going to grow. If you have all three of those things, you'll grow. If you have two of those things, you might maintain. If you have one of those things, you know, bye, we're not going to see you in six months. And that, largely proves to be true over and over again. So make sure that you have those three things going on in your spiritual walk, a community of faith, a family where you can really kind of know everybody, and then some real mentorship going on in discipling groups. We've talked before about how a disciple grows from spiritual infant to child, a young adult, to a parent themselves, helping someone else go around this wheel. And we've talked about how to disciple, we've talked about some of these things. And so now I wanna get to this page uh, here on the right. This idea of the person of peace. And I've talked about the person of peace before, but it applies a lot to what we're looking at here in Matthew 18. If you're going out, then you're going out looking for persons of peace. So persons of peace, there's going to be two things here. I know the text is small on your screen. I wonder if I can make it bigger. Yeah, a little bit. Okay. Looking at this section really right here. So this is uh, based around Luke 10, but we've also seen this in uh, the previous chapters where Jesus sends the disciples out on mission. And he says, look, if you find a place of peace, um, then stay there. If your peace is thrown back at you, then shake the dust off your feet and move on. And so Jesus is also telling them, don't take any uh, food or money, just or extra clothes, but um, eat what is given to you when you get there, these kinds of things. And so what Jesus is saying is there's going to be someone who is prepared to receive you. People just did not really have extra in the first century. So if someone had extra, they're ready to receive you. They're prepared to receive you. Uh, God has made arrangements before you get there for them to have enough to receive you. And Jesus also says, hey, I'm giving you authority. I want you to go. I want you to heal the sick and cast out demons and, and preach the word. They are going to be meeting needs in these communities that uh, where they're going. And so Jesus is saying, okay, they're going to be prepared to receive you, and they're going to have a need that you can meet. So the phrase that I would really like for you to remember is this, self-appointed chaplain. The great thing about being a self-appointed chaplain is you're self-appointed, you're, you get to decide and nobody else has any say so, right? So if there's a community of people that needs the love of Jesus, then just decide, okay, I'm going to be the self-appointed chaplain of those people. A long time ago, I decided for a, for a period of time that I was just going to be the self-appointed chaplain of Boulevard Restaurant. And I went there and I got to know a lot of the guys and girls that work there and got to know the owners. And like I say, I, I've been through lots of different kinds of things in life with them. I've been through marriages. I've been through people whose um, relationships are falling apart. Uh, I've been through births and baby showers. I've been through uh, deaths and um, and funerals. I've seen uh, tragic, unexpected loss. I've seen long-term sickness. I've seen people who have uh, overcome cancer. I've seen... Uh, people who have uh, succumbed to addiction. I've seen a lot of things, and a lot of those people have have been in my home, have been have sat on my couch. They've come here for for a, a cookout, you know, like a party, or they've come here for uh, Bible study for a small group. But I just decided I'm going to make that my my parish. I'm the self appointed chaplain of this restaurant. Uh, two young ladies I got to know in particular, Julie and Katie, and they ended up coming to my uh, small group. They had worked at the restaurant at different times and and didn't know each other very well. They kind of knew each other from work a little bit. I think they overlapped a little. But once they got in the small group, they they bonded very quickly. And now they are best of friends. Uh, it was awesome to be able to baptize them several years ago. I thank God for saving them and um, the joy this parable that Jesus tells about the lost sheep is so true. I love my Christian friends and I love my church here and I love everybody else that was in that small group. But the joy of baptizing Julie and Katie on uh I think it was April 16th like a few years ago. I mean that's uh it's just overwhelming. It's just wonderful. And um what if uh what if I had turned into uh, you know a crotchety old old hermit, you know, as I tend to be sometimes, and just decided, uh, oh, those college kids, you know, they're crazy. They're all partying and doing all kind of whatnot, and yeah, forget them. Stay away from them. What if I'd said that? What would have happened with uh, Julie and Katie? Maybe God would have sent someone else in, into their life. I, I hope so. It's kind of like the story of Esther, right? Mordecai tells Esther, hey, if you don't help, somebody else will. But you and your father's family are going to be in big trouble. And so I think it's the same kind of way with these communities around us. Oh, God might send somebody else, but he put you there and he put you near them. So when we think of these communities that kind of rile us up a little bit, I think that's probably a good sign that we really need to pray for forgiveness first, that we need to ask God for forgiveness for for having resentment in our hearts towards his children. He loves them. He wants them to be saved. Here it says in Matthew 18, he's not willing that a single one of them would perish. So we need to repent. We need to ask for forgiveness. But then we need to ask ourselves, how can we now love those people? Rather than resenting them, rather than despising them, let's call it what it is. Rather than hating them, how can we love them? How can we love our neighbor as ourselves? How can, how can we be the self-appointed chaplain to this group of people? How can we be there? Even though we disagree on you know, politics or, or morality or well, whatever, is there a way? Is there a way that I can show love to them? Is there a way that I can be there for them when they're hurting, when they have needs? Now, everyone in the community is not going to respond well. I had a lot of people that when I was uh, at the Boulevard who you know were friendly, but Didn't really want to engage in any conversation. They were just there to work, make their money and and get out of there. I had some that would gladly, they loved entertaining a friendship, but they weren't interested in any kind of Jesus anything. But, um, and Julie and Katie were not the only ones, but I met several people there, not just people that work there, but friends of mine that maybe even I met other places, but I kept running into at this place, right? It's kind of a local watering hole, right? So I would see them there and I would um, be able to talk with them just about their personal life, sort of outside of work. And um, a lot of them were going through crises. Some were dealing with addiction. Some had dealt with death in their family and, and didn't know what to do, didn't know how to pray. Um, I went through a lot of different experiences. Many was totally unprepared for. I've had some of the best experiences in my life by being a part of that community. And I'll be honest, I've been through some of the worst experiences in my life with the relationships that I've had in that community. It's tough. It's tough. Love is, love is difficult. Love is tough. But as the self-appointed chaplain, that was my job was to stay there and to be there for them. So I'm not going in, standing in, you know, on the corner of the, of uh, of the bar by the hostess station and, and preaching with a sandwich board on, you know, I'm not doing that, but I'm looking for the persons of peace. I'm looking for the people of peace. I'm looking for the ones that God's already working in and that have a need that I can meet. And then I begin meeting that need. And when when the opportunity is there, I can bring God into it. I can bring God's word into it. I can bring the principles of Jesus into it. This is exactly what Jesus does in John 4, the woman at the well, someone we've already talked about this evening. There is a, a... situation there there's a a need to be met in this case jesus wants water and so he gives the woman really some value to her life because she's there to, to, to to be able to supply him with a drink and that opens up a conversation and they begin speaking and it's revealed to us the readers that her life has been pretty hard she's had five husbands probably doesn't mean that she just got married and divorced got married and divorced i mean Probably meant in in the first century, that probably meant maybe some of her husbands had died or possibly had been killed or um, uh, maybe had run off. So here you have a woman that quite possibly was just serially abused and and felt worthless. And so to even have the value of just giving someone a cup of water probably was important to her, probably met a need that she had that only Jesus knew. Here's what's so interesting about that story. Uh, imagine if you, so I've been watching House lately, um, TV show about the the brilliant but gruff doctor. And early on, there's, a, there's an episode with LL Cool J. And LL Cool J is a, a prisoner. He's on death row and they bring him into the hospital to get him better so they can send him back to death row. And so there's sort of all these ethical questions around what's the point of healing somebody who's just going to you know, get a lethal injection in a few months. And there's a lot of judgment about him being a criminal and being a felon and the things that he's done. And he says a line in that episode that I've never forgotten. He says, you know, imagine your whole life being about the worst thing you ever did. For people who commit crimes and are convicted of crimes, it's often the case their whole life ends up being about the worst thing they ever did. I've got um, my brother as a friend who, because of one moment of bad judgment, was following a series of other bad judgments. But in one moment of bad judgment, uh, someone was killed and he went to prison for many years. And a guy got a hold of him and and brought him back. And we're thankful for that. But the consequences of, of, of one action can change your whole life. And Your whole life could be about the worst thing you ever did. What's the worst thing you ever did? What if everyone knew? What if your whole life was about that? What if everyone knew about that? What if you met someone that knew the worst thing you ever did? I don't know about you. I'm going to be real honest. My first instinct, I would tamp it down immediately because I I don't want to be this kind of person. But my first instinct would be like, how can I get rid of this person? This person knows the worst thing that I ever did. We got to get this person out of here. Some, some kind of way. I think for all of us, probably feel some kind of something like that. Right. And so that's what makes the story in John four, the one with the well. So remarkable after Jesus has the conversation with her, after he meets her need, and then he brings the theology into it. She's so ecstatic realizing that he's the Messiah. She runs into town. And what does she say about Jesus? Come meet a man who, what? Who performs miracles? Jesus performed no miracle. He didn't turn the water she gave him into wine. Come meet a man who who uh, fed thousands of people. Well, Jesus did that, but she didn't see it. He, he didn't give her any food. In fact, the disciples came back with food, and they didn't even offer any to her that we can tell. Right? Uh, come meet a man that has really great teaching, really great theological understanding. She may have thought that, but that's not what she said. What does she say? She says, come meet a man who knew everything I ever did. Now imagine someone who knows the worst thing that you ever did and you being ecstatic about it. That can only happen when there is love and there is forgiveness. In the way that Jesus was there to minister to her, when you're self-appointed chaplain of a community, rather than looking at people for the worst thing that they did, rather than looking... Uh, at a person for the, the the fires that they set, the property that they destroy, the the um, the ideas they support, the 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 government they're behind, rather than dismissing people for that reason, instead, how can you love them to the point of forgiveness, to the point of mercy? God doesn't want you to sacrifice just to sacrifice, but He does want you to sacrifice so that you can show. Mercy. When you become totally dependent on God. So that you can cut out the things that are keeping you from loving your neighbor. Then you have turned. You have changed. You've become like a little child. You're totally dependent. You're fishing for people. You're a disciple maker. And you are definitely part of the mission of the kingdom of God. So where will you plant yourself this week? This week, where will you plant yourself as a self-appointed chaplain? Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.